0: Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for Political Eclectics. I'm Robbie Gupta, and today we are interviewing Zeke Fox, who's the author of Number Go Up, Inside Crypto's Wild Rise and Staggering Fall. Zeke is an investigative reporter for Bloomberg Business Week, and Bloomberg News, and he's a national fellow at New America. Wired Magazine said that we are all reading the wrong crypto book, and they were alluding to Michael Lewis's book about SBF. They said the real book to read is Zeke's book, And I can't agree more. Zeke, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks a lot for having me
0: on. Well, Zeke, as we talk, this is the day that the Bitcoin ETF begins trading in the United States. And this has just been a few weeks where all the the sort of the familiar pattern of I told you so isms are coming from the sort of crypto maximalists. Give me the lay of the land. What's going on right now?
1: Yeah, so the Bitcoin ETF has just started trading. And what that means is that you can now easily go and buy Bitcoin in your e trade or Schwab or whatever account. And crypto people have been really pushing this as a catalyst for Bitcoin to go higher. And my question is there's always been a lot of ways to buy Bitcoin. It's relatively easy to buy through. Robinhood or Coinbase, or even every time I open Venmo, it asks me if I want to buy Bitcoin. Um, (laughs) So I'm sure there are some marginal people that will now be interested in buying a Bitcoin ETF that would not have bought Bitcoin before. But it'll be interesting to see how many of those people there are and how much money this actually represents, or if people might just move their Bitcoin investments from one form to the other.
0: What is an ETF, by the way, like for people who don't know, like what's the difference between buying the thing itself and buying the ETF?
1: The ETF is a fund that goes and buys stuff for you, whether that's Bitcoin or shares of different stocks. And then they chop up their pot of whatever they bought into shares and those trade on the stock market. And you can go and it makes it easy for you to go buy one share. And the pro-Bitcoin ETF argument is that it used to be somewhat difficult to acquire gold. And once a gold ETF was created, that ETF issuer took on the job of going and acquiring all the gold. And then you could go buy your share of their gold on the stock market. It made it a lot easier to buy gold and resulted in quite a lot of people buying gold ETFs. And the weird thing, though, from a crypto perspective, is that the appeal of Bitcoin is supposed to be that it's this decentralized way to avoid middlemen. It's this new form of money. It's going to revolutionize Wall Street. And now here it is. And the, these I told you so people, what they're promoting is this traditional Wall Street product and this idea that people would be too scared to go out and like really join the crypto world and buy Bitcoin themselves. And instead, they're going to buy shares of this ETF, not really participate in the crypto world, but just invest in Bitcoin and hope that the the price will go up.
0: And so what's behind, like previous to the ETF, right? Bitcoin has been making a bit of a comeback. I want to put it in quotes. What is behind this sort of bull market on crypto this year to the extent we know?
1: It's so fascinating to me because if you look at the Fundamentals like to the extent that crypto has fundamentals, those have to be who's using it in the real world. Are they using it to make payments? Are they developing new apps that are popular that depend on crypto? The answer is no. I mean, that's why I picked the title Number Go Up. I mean, I would say that the speculation on the price has long been pretty much the main thing going on. That is the use case, yes. And now with the ETF coming out, the Anticipation of this has driven a lot of the bullish talk on Bitcoin because everyone's just saying, "Wow, just think of all the people who are going to buy Bitcoin once this is approved." You should get in now, and yeah, I mean the price of Bitcoin has more than doubled from the lows after the FTX failure, despite like nothing really fundamental happening to justify that. And if you go look at Like, what are the crypto guys doing? Like, what sorts of apps are they making? What's happening in crypto world? And literally, one of the most exciting new applications for Bitcoin is people have figured out a way to put NFTs into the Bitcoin blockchain. These are like the digital images that became a real fad uh, a couple of years ago. And they're trading like these scribbles of wizards for big prices, like that's the sort of stuff that crypto guys are actually into and are actually doing. And yet they've come up with this ETF and this story that Bitcoin is like a great store of value. And a lot of Americans are gonna start putting their retirement money into it. And that's driven this like huge increase in the price.
0: Well, let's take a step back then. And obviously this has been an interesting year with SBF You know, FTX collapsing, SPF being indicted and then convicted. And then you have what happened with CZ, Binance. I mean, there's been one interesting downfall after another within the crypto world. But let's go all the way back. When did you decide you were writing this book?
1: It was November 2021. This was the previous peak of Bitcoin. One Bitcoin was trading for $69,000. And it seemed like everybody was talking about crypto. And I had been investigating this coin called Tether. And I'm an investigative reporter. I'm not a crypto reporter. This is kind of my intro to crypto. And I was skeptical of crypto. But just like today, if you're not really in the mix, it was the same then. You'd hear these headlines like crypto is going mainstream. Even though I was skeptical of crypto, I kind of had this idea that traditional financial players were going to get involved and that this was going to become a part of the mainstream financial system. And the crypto bros were talking about it like it was the early days of the internet. And it was going to revolutionize you know, practically everything. So I started looking at it. I, one of the first places I went was the Bitcoin 2021 conference in Miami, which was one of the first big conferences of any type after COVID restrictions lifted. And I flew down there kind of Skeptical, but also kind of thinking, well, I'm going to hear about some interesting fintech applications. And instead, I got there and I was like, I've hit the investigative reporting jackpot. Like each person I met told me like crazier things they were working on, and they'd all accumulated huge amounts of real money. So I met with SBF, who was in town to celebrate the renaming of the Miami Heat's arena after FTX. And like nobody had really heard of FTX. And you're thinking like how is he getting all this money? And he tells me this fascinating story about how he had only wanted to get rich so that he could give it all away that this his path to becoming one of the richest people in the world had started 9 years earlier with a meeting with a philosopher who convinced him that if you wanted to change the world, the best way was to get rich. And now here he was, he was living in Hong Kong at the time, because his exchange offered all sorts of trades that wouldn't be legal in the US. And yet, he's having this arena named after him. And I was like, this guy seems fascinating. I, I should definitely get to know him better and write about him. And I met another guy who he would have been crypto's number one villain had he not been surpassed by SPF. His name was Alex Mashinsky, and he ran a company called Celsius. He was very visible at all these crypto conferences. He had this slogan called Unbank Yourself, and he had this pitch that you should buy crypto and send it to Celsius, which was kind of like a bank. They'd hold your crypto and they'd pay you interest. They'd pay you 5, 10, even 15% interest at a time when banks were paying nothing. And in the investing world, the world that I'm more familiar with, if anyone's telling you that they're gonna pay you a lot of interest, that means that they have to be taking a lot of risk on the back end to generate returns to pay that interest. But mashinsky was like, no, this is very safe. In fact, banks are a scam. They could pay you 15% if they wanted to, but they're just greedy and they keep it for themselves. And he went on like this, it, it seemed so suspicious. And then I asked him like, how much money do you have at Celsius with this like barely plausible business idea? And he's like, oh, we managed $20 billion. And maybe you would say, oh, this is hindsight, it's easy to say now, no. Like this is my thought in the moment. I'm like, this guy is like, am I sitting with like a hall of fame scammer right now? Like what is going (laughs) on? Does he really have $20 billion? And he may have been exaggerating a bit, but like, yes, people had trusted the unbank yourself guy so much money. So I got back to New York from this conference. Oh, forgot the best part. End of the conference. There's a guy on stage, like your typical crypto bro. He's got curly hair. He's wearing a hoodie. He's kind of mumbly. He's like a frat bro giving a presentation about his summer vacation. He's talking about surfing in El Salvador and Bitcoin and like how it's going to help El Salvador. It's very hard to follow. And then suddenly he gets playing a video and on the big screen, it's the president of El Salvador, the real president. And he's like, hello, Bitcoin conference. I, the president of El Salvador, have decided that Bitcoin will be legal currency in my country. And the guy on stage, is he starts crying. He's like bawling. And he starts yelling. He's like, I'll be there. I will die on this hill. I will F and die on this hill. And he's bawling. It's through the tears. He's yelling. And I'm just like, what is going on? And I look around. And the people in the audience are also crying. Like people are obsessed with Bitcoin. So I realized that this whole world was much more suspicious than I had thought. Like I was pretty skeptical. And I was like, no, you should be much more skeptical. Their ideas are crazy. But then also there were huge amounts of real money pouring into it. So I decided this would be a pretty good topic for a book. And I adopted this very confident tone for writing the book proposal and said, listen, I, I know what's going to happen. This is going to come all crashing down. I'm going to be there to, to chronicle it. And a very nice editor agreed to publish this book. But then as soon as he did that, I started to become very nervous that my prediction would in fact not come true. But it turned out, it turned out amazingly that I was there to spend time with these guys to visit them on their yachts when like things were going great, and then to visit SBF at his penthouse in the Bahamas you know, just before the cops got there. So it worked out great that I was there for the whole thing. Yeah, and your book essentially is a series
0: of stories of how you kind of interacted with these people as you tried to figure out Bitcoin. And I think the best way to think about it for the audience's perspective is you were kind of chasing down the various use cases for this currency or claimed use cases. And I think one interesting example is what you talked about with El Salvador. You went to El Salvador from what I understand. Explain to us like, let's kind of chronicle the use cases. So this is an important trip because the use case here is a currency, right? This is the most promising and robust use case for a cryptocurrency is that it actually serves as a, a currency. Give us the background and what you saw.
1: There were already some clues that Bitcoin was maybe not the best currency. First of all, it had been around for a while. And nobody was using it as a currency. Pretty much nobody. Even at the conferences that I would go to, like Bitcoin conferences, they'd often not accept Bitcoin for your beer or your lunch or whatever. Or the machine would be down. I mean, there are some clues this wasn't going to go that well. But the president of El Salvador, he said that everyone in the country, if they downloaded the special app, Would receive $30 worth of Bitcoin. And he also ordered all merchants to accept Bitcoin, although it turned out that it wasn't like strictly enforced. So there's no place on earth where people are really using Bitcoin as a currency. And this was like an amazing experiment. And it happened because like the people who love Bitcoin really love Bitcoin and they dedicate their life to promoting Bitcoin. And I think, you know, they're pretty misguided, but often they're genuinely like obsessed with Bitcoin. And they started one surfer from San Diego started promoting Bitcoin and giving out free Bitcoin in this town, the surfing town south of San Salvador. That's what got it on the president's radar and he decided to exp- go national. By the time I got there, we were about a year into the experiment. And since it was pretty Novel idea. There have been a lot of studies of what had happened. What it found is that pretty much most people took their free $30 or got like a teenager they knew who could use phones better to get the, the free $30 off their phone somehow and then forgot all about it. And it was actually kind of tough to investigate because you go around and ask people about Bitcoin. And they're just like, I don't care. Like, what are you, why are we talking about this? This literally, like, I have no opinion because it has no relevance to me. Even in Bitcoin Beach, which is the English name the Bitcoiners gave to El Zante, the beach where this surfer started his experiment. The first store I went to was like a roadside bodega. And I asked for a bottle of water. And then I said to the guy who was handing me the water, and I I said to the clerk in my best gringo Spanish, Puedo pagar con Bitcoin? And the guy said, Basura and grabbed it out of my hand and just walked away. Like, please leave my <laughs> leave. Go on down the road. We don't like your kind here. And I mean, the issue is that the things that make Bitcoin kind of cool, like that it's decentralized, also make it unwieldy. And transactions can take a really long time. They often fail. Even for someone like this merchant, it's just so annoying that he's willing to forego that what sale of a some sales to tourists just to avoid learning how to use it. And in the bigger cities, it was even worse. Just it was very hard to find anyone who used Bitcoin at all. And even at stores where they advertised that they took Bitcoin, you'd ask the clerk uh, if you could pay with Bitcoin. And they'd they'd come up with excuses like, oh, the manager's not in. I don't know where he keeps the Bitcoin machine. Just like anything to avoid it. So yeah, the payments use case, it seemed like I mean, this is the best experiment for it, and it didn't seem like it was working at all. And honestly, before this, it had been pretty discredited. And is is there
0: anywhere where this is fairly widespread? Is there a city or a town anywhere in the world where any significant percentage of transactions are taking place in cryptocurrency, whether it's Bitcoin or anything else?
1: Well, I did find one group of people who love to use cryptocurrency, which is these certain kinds of cross-border criminals who let's say they're based in Cambodia, they're scamming people halfway across the world in the US. And for them, crypto is great. Because if let's say I try to buy something with my credit card from someone in Cambodia, it'll be flagged as a suspicious transaction. If the person scams me, I can charge it back. If I send a bank wire, Similarly, the scammer would have to tell me their name so I could put it on the bank wire. The bank would probably call me and be like, are you sure you want to send your money to Cambodia? But for these scammers, they can get Americans to send them big sums of money. And crypto is really helpful because to receive the transaction, you just have to give the sender your wallet address, which is a 32 character string of random letters and numbers. And the Person who's being scammed doesn't have to know your real name, and once they send their money, it moves across the world instantly, and there's there's no refunds. So if you think back to the old time, like Nigerian prince email scams that were popular in the early days of the internet, those guys, you know, they they send spam emails. They try and find people who are willing to send an advance fee in hopes of recovering, you know, some sort of uh, stolen treasure. But the scammers who are in Nigeria had to find accomplices in the U.S., money mules, people who would use their bank accounts to receive payments from the victims. And those money mules would often get caught. And if they they might have clues to who the ultimate boss was, and that was like a weak point in these scams. So for uh, illicit activities, some of the benefits of crypto, like the semi-anonymity, the finality like the no refunds for those people those things outweigh the inconvenience and they make it worthwhile to to use crypto for payments so you know
0: if i hear you correctly you're saying criminal activity being probably the most prominent use case there are a lot of articles out there though that say that if you're the federal government actually if it rises to the level of something that the FBI is interested in they're really good at tracking down cryptocurrency transactions is that right
1: yeah. So, especially if you commit a crypto crime, like if you rob, if you hack a crypto exchange and steal all their crypto, we can go look on the blockchain. And what we'll see is that the crypto used to be in the exchange's wallet and now it's in this new wallet. And anyone can go look at that. And the, the, it's almost as if a die pack goes off. That wallet. We don't know whose wallet it is. It's just a 32 digit string of random letters and numbers. But that wallet, no one will transact with them. Everyone knows that wallet contains stolen money. And so the criminals often, because it's so difficult to, I mean, you want to cash out. You need to, that was the point of hacking the exchange. They'll try different ways to get some of the crypto out of that wallet and will eventually give up some sort of clues to their identity. By sending that money to an exchange where they've had to give identity documents or something like that. And yes, like in those cases, the FBI will put in the effort to say, okay, the hackers put it in this wallet, they sent it to that wallet, then it went to the exchange. I'm going to subpoena the exchange. Oh, look, the person, it was like this person's account. I'm going to go interview them and they can figure it out. But like for, I mean, in the book, I played along with this one. Uh, a scammer named Vicky Ho, who had sent me a spam text message and then tried to entice me to send my money over for this uh, crypto trading scam. And if I called the cops, they would be able to see, okay, and I, I did call a crypto tracing expert, the so, same kind of person that the police would call. And what they could see is that, all right, you so here's the $100 in Zeke's wallet. Now it went over to the Scammer's wallet, wow, the scammer sure had a lot of similar transactions passed through this wallet. Looks like they could have made $7 million off this scam based on what we see here. But in order to figure out some sort of clue to the scammer's identity, you'd have to figure out that they had sent that money to different crypto exchanges, then subpoena the exchanges and see what the customer's name was. And like that's a lot of work and is not always done for like run-of-the-mill and if the scammer is smart, there's ways they can obfuscate that. They often don't even use all the tricky methods that are available to them because so few of these crypto scam cases even get traced.
0: What about the remittances argument? So I often hear from people that, hey, one use case for crypto is remittances. And by remittances for our audience, we mean people who Live in other countries, like if you live in, if you have family from Bangladesh or, and you're in Dubai and you want to send money home, or if I'm in the US and I want to send money to Mexico home, the argument is that this is a more efficient way to send that money and it, it avoids places like Western Union, which charge really high fees. Did you find anything interesting on the remittances front?
1: In El Salvador, the government really pushed this angle and they even, offered to cover fees if citizens use their app for remittances. And they set up special Bitcoin ATMs in consulates overseas to facilitate this. So like in theory, it seems great. Like this actually it would save people money. But the studies showed that only like a couple percentage points of remittances went through El Salvador's proprietary system. Maybe because the hassle was not worth the savings. And I would say like this use case does make a lot of sense. The fees may be less competitive than you might think because you in the US as a sender will incur some fees acquiring the crypto. Like you will need to pay Coinbase a fee to buy Bitcoin. That could be like a couple percent. Then there'll be some transaction cost on the blockchain which there's certain blockchains where those fees are minimal, but on Bitcoin, you'd pay like a decent fee. And then the recipient will also incur a trading fee when they want to cash out their crypto. So those fees could easily add up to, a I don't know, three or 4%, which is then might be pretty similar to what uh, Western Union would charge you. And uh, like I send money regularly to Kenya and like the app that i use charges like very very low fees so in order to convince me to switch to crypto yeah i don't know that even if the fees were zero the fees i'm paying now are minimal so i don't think i'd be i'd be motivated to switch but i could see how that use case does make sense
0: yeah and and i think one final use case i hear from people is the well there are a couple that we haven't gotten to yet but one of them is is a store of value in places where the currency is volatile. And so I I think this is an interesting argument because there definitely are places where currency is unreliable. What I find fascinating about that argument, though, is it's hard to argue that Bitcoin and these other cryptocurrencies are anything other than volatile, but but there are stable coins that are linked to the dollar or whatever, right?
1: Yeah. Is there
0: anything to this argument?
1: Yeah, I mean, The stablecoin tether, which is really at the center of the book, the one that I set out to investigate, each token is worth a dollar because the company that issues them says that whenever they sell a token for a dollar, they take that dollar and they put it in the bank somewhere. So it seems pretty safe. It's gotten so popular that we're heading towards 100 billion tethers.
0: So ostensibly, there's $100 billion. That's what they claim. There's $100 billion in the bank account somewhere that this company would have, according to that logic.
1: Yes, that's what they say. And honestly, when I set out to investigate it, they wouldn't say where the money was. And there were so many red flags that made me think that similar to Celsius, that this was uh, another company that I needed to investigate. I mean, the company wouldn't even really say where it was the ceo and the cfo never came to any of these conferences some people thought the ceo didn't exist because he was seen in public so little but tether has held up like there were a lot of people when i started who were like this is a giant scam they don't have any money um this is like the scam at the center of crypto but tether's held up and even when the rest of crypto crashed it stayed at a dollar when people asked for their money back tether sent them the real dollars back so at this point it seems likely that if they don't have every single dollar, they have quite a lot of them, and the currency has stayed pretty strong. Well, let's talk
0: about that for a second. If if they're right, and if they're telling the truth, that they have $100 billion in an account, wouldn't that make them the largest bank in the world?
1: There is so much money out there that that would not... I mean, you'd be in, like, the top 50 in the U.S. or something like that, but you, you wouldn't be in the top 10. Interesting. So people in... Let's say you're in Argentina, where there's been a lot of inflation, you could open an account at a crypto exchange like FTX or Binance, and you could buy Tether within that account. And that might be sort of the easiest way for you to hold your money in US dollars, because you can't go open an account at JP Morgan. So that use case also makes sense. However, why can't anyone in Argentina open like a bank account at JPMorgan? I mean, it's because we have all these rules that banks have to follow about knowing who their customers are. And Tether, by their token, you know, can be held in these anonymous wallets, same as other cryptocurrencies. So it's kind of an end run around a lot of the rules that apply to other places where people can hold dollars. Like PayPal could offer this service, but if it wasn't for regulatory obstacles, we could all use PayPal. We could send our remittances on PayPal and they would not have to charge like high fees. We just, our dollars could just be entries on PayPal's computer and PayPal could uh, keep the money in the bank somewhere. And PayPal originally, when they created the company, they kind of had that ambition for it, but I think ran into all of these, rules that prevent you from having your like instant world anonymous currency so i i wonder if tether will run into trouble with regulators because it's as it gets bigger and bigger it becomes this way for the sort of alternative way to access the dollar with fewer restrictions if they could run afoul of regulators that way
0: There appear to be very few staff at this company. And I talked to Ben McKenzie about this when, when we, I interviewed him about his book about crypto. Is it, There's just so many questions. Who are these people? Where are they headquartered, et cetera? What do we know? Just give us a refresher on this.
1: So one of the founders, who was Brock Pierce, who was an early crypto pro, prominent, early Bitcoiner, He's a child actor who, if you've seen the classic movie, The Mighty Ducks, he plays coach Gordon Bombay in a flashback where he misses a penalty shot. And after his uh, acting career, he lost interest in acting. He went on to run this company where he traded digital items in World of Warcraft and EverQuest, like rare swords and things like that. There was like a market for these. Items in these massively multiplayer online games. And he was like, a, his company was a big broker of those items, made a lot of money on that, actually, with the help of Steve Bannon, randomly, who came in as a CEO. And then he, among a lot of other people, a lot of people claim to be the inventor of Tether, but he says that he had this idea for a cryptocurrency that was tied to the US dollar that wouldn't be as volatile as Bitcoin. And Tether didn't take off right away. And he sold his interest in the company. The new boss of Tether was this guy by the name of Giancarlo DiVicini. And he was a former plastic surgeon from Milan who had gone into the electronics import-export business. And according to Tether, he'd been quite successful in that business. Although I found some other facts when I went to Milan to investigate his past. But Vicini was kind of this mysterious figure. The only photo that I saw of him online when I started looking into him was from this art show. And it showed him shaving. And he'd shaved half his face. And he was sort of staring in the mirror. It was a photography show about turning points. He had written this little essay or given this little interview about when he stopped being a plastic surgeon. And he was like, I realized that My life's work was a scam. And rather than give another boob job, he had run off to China. And he's still the man in charge of Tether. In my reporting, I came across his old blog that he'd written after his divorce. And this is like how deep you have to go to get anything on these guys. And in this blog, I saw sort of the seeds of his crypto awakening, where in between essays about Women and his thoughts on life. He had written posts about his hatred of central banks. And even one when Bernie Madoff's scam was unraveled, he'd written this one post that seemed to be kind of uh, admiring the scale of his deceit, which was just like almost too on the nose. So I set out to find this Tether's money. It was $50 billion when I started. And the only bank that I could find that was. Willing to say they were holding some of it was this bank in the Bahamas called Deltec. And it was run by Jean Chalopin, who is the inventor of the cartoon Inspector Gadget. So let me just get this right. So we have a
0: Mighty Duck actor, the inventor of Inspector Gadget, a former plastic surgeon who admires Bernie Madoff. Those are the players we have at the table right now for this $100 billion. Company.
1: Right. I mean, in the world of traditional finance, nobody would trust a a company like that. Like I write in the book, this company was practically quilted out of red flags. And yet in the crypto world, it seemed like everybody trusted them. And every day, like some days, more than 100 billion of Tether changes hands. And to me, it was one of the most mysterious things in all of crypto. But like I said, even as nearly all the big companies I'd heard about in my like couple of years going down this rabbit hole, were failing one after another, so they're held up.
0: Yeah, but my question on that is, if we're talking about a hundred billion dollars, right? Like how do we know they're only holding up because the percentage that people are calling them on is just enough that they can handle, right? Like, like what's your sense of the scale of requests that they have received at any one time to pull money? Because like, if you're $100 billion, if if people pull 20 billion, you still may not be, you may not be solvent, you may only have 30, right? Like there's, we don't know, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, you can't really know for sure. However, I mean, people did pull something like 10 billion, which is quite a lot. Like a lot of other companies failed with far, smaller amounts of withdrawals, like some of the banks that failed last year or FTX. So I don't think it would be fair to not count that as a good sign about Tether that they were able to handle the $10 billion of withdrawals. They also, something big changed about their business over the last couple of years. When I started looking into Tether, interest rates were zero. So this business of giving out 50 billion Tether tokens and having a pile of $50 billion was actually not that great. It's almost like a burden because where are you going to put this $50 billion? And there's no way to safely earn a high return with it. So my suspicion was that Tether was putting that $50 billion at risk by investing in a lot of weird stuff. And I found some evidence pointing in that direction. I mean, I think that they, they definitely did invest in a lot of weird stuff. However, now interest rates have gone up and you can buy US Treasuries that'll pay you 5% a year. So what that means is that if you have 100 billion dollars, you could buy 100 billion dollars of US Treasuries and earn 5 billion dollars a year. And if you believe Tether, that's what they're saying they're doing pretty much. And Tether is now earning billions of dollars a year is more profitable than Nike, all the plastic surgeon definitely a billionaire. And so are other people associated with it. And so, even if Tether had been a short on at one point a few billion dollars, they could have earned their way out of the hole by now. That's interesting.
0: Uh, yeah, and I think what's fascinating is you know I talked to Ben McKenzie. He he was also similarly obsessed with Tether in part because there's just not as much of a conversation happening with it right now, right? Like it's there's so much conversation about Ethereum and Bitcoin. Uh, and some of the other. You just probably The average person probably knows more about Dogecoin than Tether, but Tether is so dominant, so important, uh, and so underreported.
1: Yeah, and I think without Tether, I'm not sure the whole crypto world could have developed in the way that it did because in the early years of crypto especially, it was very hard for these crypto companies to get access to U.S. dollars. and So Tether was like this crucial on-ramp To the whole crypto ecosystem
0: yeah well okay so as you think about this year ahead last year was like an absolutely massive year in the world of crypto the two biggest biggest personalities and most you know in many ways the most successful companies went down in some way like obviously binance i think is it's not exactly as clear of a wipeout and i I don't think it's the last we've seen of cz for sure but as you look ahead to this year, what are sort of the big milestones or questions that you think will be answered by the end of
1: the year? I keep coming back to what I think of as like the fundamentals of value. And I think that for something to have value, people have to want it. They have to want it because they use it for something or because it generates income for them. And my take on crypto hasn't really changed, which is that there's is not the underlying activity going on to generate like the level of interest in buying crypto that we're seeing. What's going on in crypto is like people trading cartoon apes for tens of thousands of dollars, or maybe now it's wizards. But yet in the most of the financial media, now crypto is being treated as like this serious alternative investor that maybe a lot of people should consider for their retirement. So I think that like the title of the book is Number Go Up, because this is the crypto guy's argument. A lot of them is just like, hey, if the price goes up, then people will get more excited. The price will go up more. More people will go get excited. Pretty soon, the price is going to the moon. And to me, that is just the logic of a pyramid scheme. And the price cannot go up forever for no reason. And eventually, logic will return to the market. And if people are not using Crypto for anything. If they don't invent some sort of mainstream use that is drawing in like real users, eventually people will lose interest in it, and the prices will go back down. Even you know the GameStop craze like didn't last forever. Zeke, thank you so much.
0: Tell us where can folks find your work. Uh, where can folks follow you? You
1: can find me at on Bloomberg or Twitter is Zeke Fox Z E K E F A U X. Great. Uh,
0: and everybody, go out there and and get this book it's really remarkable uh, number go up uh, wherever you get your books and uh zeke good luck out there i, I hope your next book is as fun and adventure as this
1: one was hey thanks a lot